Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. So tonight's topic is human rights organizing in Africa during a global pandemic, trends and insights. And I can think of nobody better to talk to us about this than Irungu Houghton. So I first met Irungu uh, in 2003 at the WTO summit. Uh, uh, and at that point, the world and their dog was, were, were campaigning on trade. And I was working for a small NGO in Britain. We went in to listen to the big developing countries, Brazil, China, India, talk about their positions. And at some point in the middle of their presentation, they said, and we're now gonna stop our presentation and invite Oxfam to come on stage. Every NGO in the audience was torn between admiration for Oxfam's advocacy and hatred of Oxfam for its success. And Erungu appeared in flowing robes, absolutely brilliant, gave a great speech and handed over a petition uh, of I think 20 million signatures to the agriculture, to, to the trade ministers of the big G20 countries saying, we support you in your effort to stop the, uh, principally the EU and the US rewriting trade rules to their own benefit and to your um, you know, disbenefit. And uh, I was very impressed. I've been just as impressed in every other contact I've had with Irungu since. He is currently executive director for Amnesty International Kenya but he's worked and volunteered with some of the most influential organizations in the world, including ActionAid, Equality Now, Oxfam, as I said, and he's advised several African governments, the African Union and the G8, among others. Um, so he is a, a, a very interesting figure in terms of moving between spheres and understanding the language and what works to influence people at different levels. So he's a perfect person to come and talk to us about human rights organizing. Our discussant is equally distinguished, Chaloka Bayani. He's the Associate Professor of International Law at LSE Law School and a member of the Center for the Study of Human Rights and Chair of its Advisory Board. He's also a member of the Center for Climate Change at the LSE. And he is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of internal, Internally Displaced Persons. Take it away, please, Irungu. Thank you very much, Duncan. And let me just start by saying you have the memory of an elephant and the grace of a gazelle in terms of how you introduced me. <laughs> Um, which probably covers two out of the big five. Um, the second thing I wanted to just say was that really I'm fulfilling a lifetime dream of my family, which is to speak on Houghton Street, uh, albeit virtually, uh, given that my surname is uh, very similar. Um, I'm, a, I'm an alumni of uh, University of London. I studied in uh, SOAS um, back in the 1980s. And uh, at that time, SOAS was an extremely right-wing, um, to some extent, racist institution. And uh, I always remember the first um, lecture, which was um, went something like this. The reason that Africa was not developed um, or was not developing was primarily because um, uh, it wasn't exploited enough. And I spent a two weeks, I think, in the library trying to figure out which part of Marxism uh, this came from and then discovered that it was actually a, uh, an earlier Marx, who Karl Marx, who basically had the sense that everywhere in the world had to go from one um, epoch to another and that Africa, because it was disrupted by imperialism, would never uh, get to that point. Um, so, you know, I, I start off with this very conservative education. I have now been told severally that uh, SOAS is probably one of the most radical institutions on the planet at the moment. I'm probably exaggerating for those of you who are a bit closer, but I guess what um, I'm struck by really is, is the shift that has happened within um, African academics uh, or Afri African academia and academia on Africa. And it really gives me a great pleasure to, to be able to just share some reflections from the work that I've been doing. Um, you know, over the last, uh, I guess, over the last um, 
10 years or so um, since I left Oxfam and I was working primarily at an international level, I've been able to focus in uh, just on this, uh, you know, republic uh, that I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a native of. And um, I'm, I'm actually speaking to you from Nairobi, Kenya today. And what I've learned over the last 10 years is essentially that um, it is possible as an NGO activist, as a social justice activist, to be extremely um, active and visible at international levels and at regional levels. And I, I spent 10 years working with Oxfam um, on the African Union and I you know, pushed very hard, um, you know, African Union, progressive African Union conventions, standards on gender inequality, on governance, on uh, uh, universal health care and, and various other, um, uh, you know, issues, including um, the protocol on the rights of women in Africa. But it is possible to do all of that and be completely anonymous in your home country. And really what I'm going to share is a bit of a journey um, uh, and also, I guess, um, some thoughts that are now uh, fortunately written down in, in, a, in, a, in a format that's slightly longer than um, a tweet, uh, which has been really my main mode of communication um, uh, over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I wrote a book recently called um, Dialogue and Dissent, uh, A Country in Search of a Constitution. And as we published it, I was really present to really a decade of um, uh, of experiences very much, yes, within the Kenyan context, but um, in many ways, uh, many African countries um, could see themselves in the story that, um, uh, you know, is stranger than fiction, but actually to, to a large extent is a non-fiction um, uh, piece of writing. The main focus um, uh, of my presentation today um, is really you know, the extent to which constitutionalism rests on um, the, uh, the, the activeness or the, the, the power of active citizenship in very polarized, grossly unequal and unsafe worlds for the majority of Africans. And how the centrality of citizens' consciousness and citizens' agency in either protecting or uh, rather in creating and or protecting transformative constitutions is so critical. And my story, um, you know, my story really starts in this conversation back in uh, on the 19th of January in 2015. That's six years ago, a few, you know, just a few days back. And um, a few of us walked onto a playground um, that was in danger uh, of being grabbed by the um, uh, by a neighbor, and it was a private hotel that was owned by the deputy president, extremely powerful um, individual um, and uh, a presidential candidate in these elections uh, in uh, August 2022. And we walked onto the playground to essentially support the school community, um, 800 pupils, um, several teachers and several parents to protect a two acre uh, playground. Over the next eight hours, we had one of the most intense moments of my life which was essentially um, facing down over 100 police officers with dogs, with tear gas, uh, uh, gas cylinders, um, and essentially ensuring that the interests of the hotel would not be allowed to excise this uh, playground from these 800 children in order to make way for a car park. And something in the country shook in that moment and for many of us um uh you know many many kenyans still remember that i still go into public space and they say are you the guy that was being bundled into a police car after trying to protect um, uh, a playground in the langata road uh, primary school and the hashtag for that is occupy playground and I, I want to just start there because i think in many ways what i learned from that process was really that there are a number of walls, and some of them are very personal, emotional walls, and, and some of them are very public structural walls that keep justice far away from the, um, the, the horizon of millions of millions of Kenyans and millions of Africans. And that it's really these walls that we need to target and focus on to ensure that people um, are able to be equal under the law, that they have is the same access to law courts, to lawyers, um, and that their dignity and that their safety is really upheld um, by all governments across the continent. Let me step back a little bit and just give a bit of a context. 
So in Africa, we've seen at least four different ways of constitutions. We had the uh, constitutional orders that were handed down by the constitutions. I call them in Kiswahili, the Mitumba uh, constitutions, because these are constitutions that were secondhand. They were essentially uh, foisted on uh, African subjects by colonial powers. And many colonial governments started off with those constitutions. A series of waves um, over the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, and the 1990s gave rise to what I call the fourth wave of constitutions. And these were the constitutions um, that began to look more seriously at enshrining expanded Bill of Rights, expanding social, economic, and cultural rights, but more importantly, also expanding um, freedoms of expression, association and assembly, and the right to a fair hearing, and the right to lawyers and, and medical treatment, and so on. And in many ways, Kenya is one of the most fascinating countries from that perspective. Over the last 42, well, let me get this right, over the last 60 years, and this is uh, probably where my um, uh, senior moment, senior, senile moment, no, did I say senior or senile? Anyway, both uh, moment comes from. Over the last 60 years, um, we have seen in the Kenyan context 24 amendments uh, to our constitution. And before the 2010 constitution, many of these amendments essentially dismantled any vestige of democratic space or civic space for people to be able to dissent, to be able to protest, or to be able to essentially define the, the, the nature of government uh, that uh, they wanted. In 2010, we got our constitution. And I, as I say in the book, we moved from a, a country in search of a constitution. And for the next 10 years, from 2010 to 2022, the next 20, 12 years, we essentially became a constitution in search of a country. And I think this is one of the things we could discuss a little bit. How is it that constitutions have become these sites of contestation, not just in Kenya, but elsewhere in Africa? Um, and how is it that, you know, in almost two or three generations, Africans have gone from being subjects to being citizens with direct representation? In the context of the Kenyan, in the context of Kenya, our constitutional article one states that not only are we citizens with with a representational, um, uh, with representatives in uh, the National Assembly, um, uh, but or representative government, but we are essentially citizens who are sovereign. We are citizens that have direct agency in and about our in and in in ourselves, and also we have the capacity to essentially defend the constitution. And this is written into the Kenyan constitution. But I guess if you look to the constitution and you spent, you know, just a couple of hours looking at the, the news that comes out of Kenya. The first thing that you would probably come to is how can the gap be so large between the constitutional vision and the contextual reality that millions of Kenyans experience on a daily basis? And I think what we have seen in the last two years, particularly this period of COVID-19, has been that, you know, the fault lines of corruption the fault lines of inequalities, and I use that word in plural specifically, and the fault lines of discrimination um, are essentially so deep that this virus, this miserable little virus that has occupied global attention and has killed you know, so many people across the world, that this miserable little virus didn't just come to disrupt um, uh, the political economy of countries like Kenya, it actually came to solidify and and essentially allow for um, these greater fault lines, these greater viruses of corruption, inequalities and discrimination to, to essentially grip the country even more hard, uh, more tightly. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, our experience um, in terms of human rights organizing around five policy tensions. And the first tension relates to the uh, the legal uh, or the legislative approach that African governments have taken to um, uh, responding to COVID-19. Some countries like South Africa issued a state of emergency to deal with the, um, I guess, what there's the secession or the restriction of public liberties um, in, in order to fight uh, COVID-19. Kenya, on the other hand, chose to go through uh, the use of the Public Health Act and essentially invoked a section of the act that said 
that in the case of a pandemic or an epidemic, um, the Ministry of Health could invoke certain measures that would include the following. And we've seen these happen across um, the, the last two years. So the first thing was that movement would be interrupted and there would be a succession of movement from different parts of the country uh, to other parts of the country to ensure that the virus didn't get transported in the bodies of Kenyans moving back and forth. The second thing that was announced was that there would be a curfew. And for several years, for two years almost, um, we went from you know, a 12 hour to a 16 hour curfew that ensured that people could not leave their homes. Like everywhere in the world, else in the world, we were forced to wear masks in public. And thirdly, and fourthly, uh, fourthly that is, we saw the uh, closure of uh, public entertainment and other facilities um, to ensure that people could not gather in spaces that would lead to the proliferation of the virus. Now, why I think this is really important is because um, for those of us that campaigned essentially for a public health approach to the, pan the pandemic, rather than a state of emergency approach, was this has allowed us to avoid the dangers of over-militarization. Now, this doesn't mean that um, Kenya did not experience the kind of violence and uh, police brutality that we've seen all over the world. But in the case of Kenya, we were able to use the constitution and various laws to essentially um, push back against curfew-related violations. And in the case of Kenya, many of these violations were essentially projected or rather propelled not by any public health concern, but really by extortion bribery um, the, that was being carried out by police officers under the uh, pretext that they were essentially enforcing COVID-19 regulations. The second thing that we could do is that we could continue to push for um, freedom of expression. We could continue to push for freedom of assembly. Uh, and in many cases, we were able to organize uh, protests against police brutality um, that would not have been possible if there had been um, a, a state of emergency um, uh, called to deal with the COVID. And I think this is the first policy tension that for us um, was very important as human rights organizers. The second was, uh, was, was really the tension between the relentless infrastructural development and the investment in infrastructure, roads, uh, railways, and uh, other um, forms of public uh, infrastructure versus the need for people to stay at home. And I want to give you this uh, very graphically because it affects um, thousands, tens of thousands of people across Kenya that during the uh, pandemic were forcibly be evicted from their homes to make way for large upgrading um, uh, projects of roads and railways. Um, we did a study as Amnesty International back in, uh, we released a study back in 2021, January, um, on the back of a very vicious uh, eviction of a Nubian community in Kisumu County um, that affected 3,000 people. Um, and what uh, we pointed out was that um, there is a complete ridiculousness in calling uh, for people to stay at home, when at the same time you are bulldozing people's homes, many of them people from informal settlements, uh, in fact, in most cases, uh, primarily from informal settlements. These are people who live under, you know, one pound a day. Uh, they are living in um, fairly uh, humble uh, shacks, um, many of them six by six feet um, housing. There may be a family in those spaces, and many of them did not have uh, the luxury of water and sanitation um, that came with the instructions, first of all, to stay at home, and then secondly, to wash their hands um, regularly. And I think the, 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 this tension has been a really important tension for many of us. Um, and for human rights organizing, one of the things that we had to do um, was immediately call for a, a moratorium on all forced evictions, which um, was not universally or 100% successful. But in many cases, what it did is it restricted the capacity of the state to remove people from their homes and their communities at a time when the pandemic was raging, and in particular, at a time when the Delta variant was having most impact um, on communities across uh, Kenya. The, second the third tension 
relates to the issue of safety versus violence. Now, like many other places in the world, um, Kenya saw an upsurge of violence and mental health challenges. And many of that um, came from um, essentially the, the, the mental uh, health challenges of being isolated and unable to, um, to essentially carry on um, with what um, is, you know, what defines us as human beings. I mean, we are defined as human beings by our love of liberty, by our love of um, being able to engage with other human beings. And for many people, um, this clampdown, first of all, brought people back into their homes for longer periods than they had. And not only were they brought back into their homes for those periods, but many of them lost jobs. We saw upwards of about 2 million people lose their jobs during COVID-19. Um, we saw schools close for months and children have to go through um, as homeschooling or at least online learning in their homes. And it was without, you know, it was fairly predictable that in that context, gender-based violence would go up by 40%. Mental health would and suicide uh, rates would essentially skyrocket over this period. And I think one of the challenges that we had during this period, and we had to think carefully about how to do this, was really how do we get access to people, particularly between those hours in which the curfew was operational, those hours where people um, were in their homes and couldn't get either to the police station because there were roadblocks um, that prevented them. And essentially, um, many of those roadblocks were violent and um, would leave people unable um, to safely get access um, to uh, either paralegal support or to uh, get access to, um, uh, you know, to hospitals and healthcare facilities. So one of the most interesting things in that period was the different things, uh, the different strategies the human rights organizations developed. And this included, for example, uh, localized civic leadership joint patrols with their police officers. One of my favorite um, uh, superheroes of this period, and literally uh, there should be a Marvel movie made about this woman, is uh, Mama Fat uh, Halima, who works for the Kia Michael uh, Social Justice Center. And she, she basically spent um, days and nights walking with police officers and found that in doing that, levels of violence came down and levels of um, aggression from the community towards the police. In many communities, police are seen as a uh, occupying uh, force, a violent force, and therefore communities were primed to attack police officers, um, in some ways letting off steam against the uh, the impact of the curfew more broadly. Um, but we also saw some really nice touching moments. I mean, I one of my vivid moments was being invited to speak online to a class um, of um, uh, pre-teenagers. And uh, they, uh, they had a polite policing project that they had developed over this period. And it was provoked by the death of a young boy called Yasin Moyo, who was shot on his balcony around about the time that uh, George Floyd um, uh, was killed. Uh, the experience of Yasin Moyo was really quite a you know, horrific one for many Kenyans. And this was a young boy. He was out on his balcony, three or four uh, fl flights up, and a police officer uh, with, um, you know, with a torch basically shot him um, in uh, the presence of his mother and sister and brother, um, and he died instantly. Um, and the children saw this on television. And as Amnesty rose to protest this and to call for justice for Yasin Moyo, um, their parents found my telephone number and asked me to come and speak to them. And they, they had created this polite policing project as their equivalent um, to uh, advice to the police um, to become much more human rights based in the way that they police. And they did two things in that moment. I spent 45 minutes with them. The first thing they did was they wrote letters to the family, uh, to the, the mother and the father of Yasin Moyo, and expressed their solidarity as largely, in, the, in this case, middle-class children reaching across from Kilimani to Kiamaiko, um, a informal settlement um, uh, with several, you know, um, uh, you know, for several uh, indices of poverty and, uh, uh, and vulnerability. And they, they wrote solidarity letters. The second thing that they did is they wrote letters to the Inspector General of the National Police Service. And I had the opportunity to read the letters 
publicly on national television um, uh, to the uh, police spokesperson. And I, you know, I'm always left by the capacity of, um, you know, humanity to rise up um, and call out injustice. Um, and, 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 you know, in this case, you know, that sometimes we infantilize uh, children, uh, and I use that slightly ironically, but, you know, we, we, we tend to infantilize children to the extent that we don't think that they can make the distinction between right and wrong and that they cannot have agency themselves. Um, and, and for me, this was just another example, like those children back in Langata Road Primary School that rose to protect their school, um, that they can actually uh, reach out and make those connections. So I think this is the third, um, I guess, tension that's there. The last tension, uh, the fourth tension, I think that I wanted to talk a little bit about was the, um, the powerful uh, tension between local activism and local injustices and international solidarity and international justice movement building. One of the most powerful moments, I think, on the uh, planet um, during uh, the COVID-19 was really the global mobilization around George Floyd and the killing of George Floyd. It, it reverberated not just in terms of the United States of America, across the different states of America, led by the Black Lives Matter movement, but it, it, it reverberated in places like the UK. But here in Kenya, um, despite the 9,000 kilometers distance, as a result of this digital connectivity that we now have that is available for those of us that can see that there is no difference between a police officer stepping on the neck of a black man in uh, Minnesota, or a police officer shooting an unarmed boy in uh, the, uh, you know, the dense informal settlements of Kiamichael, Nairobi, um, it gave us the capacity to be able to see each other as activists in this struggle together. And the racial reckoning that's now in the United States of America um, what has reverberated in conversations around inclusion, diversity, um, and also the issues of, of equalities um, uh, across different identities. And in Kenya, how that showed up was a series of flash mob um, protests organized by Kenyans, by African-Americans who live in Kenya, and by Africans, um, uh, by Africans across the continent. What was wonderful, one of the most poignant moments for me was really being able to take that energy and bring it very forcefully into the, um, I guess, the boardrooms of policymaking. And I think for me, the other lesson um, that came from that moment and came from international solidarity is how important it is for us to be able to connect our struggles uh, and be able to draw lessons from what has worked. And whether it be the conversations around defunding the police whether it be the conversations about police reforms more generally, whether it be issues about um, essentially having more civilian oversight and um, uh, uh, I guess governance um, over the police and uh, you know, the, the other law enforcement agencies or the armed um, uh, institutions of our state. Um, these are all really important um, activism questions, but they're also research questions. And I think what I would want to leave you with, um, you know, after we, when we come to the end of this presentation is really how important it is for us to be able to see these as research questions, really not research questions that end in an inquiry, but really give some clarity about what's possible, uh, what's transformatively possible for the future. I think the other thing that, um, you know, showed up for me in terms of the international solidarity has been really the, um, the global misjustice with regards to the inequalities around vaccine access. Um, 400 years ago, European powers were bending over backwards to essentially uh, abduct and forcibly transport African labor to the Caribbean, to other parts of the world, to the new, uh, to the new Americas, as they used to call it. Um, and what, what an interesting, really horrific moment we have gone through in the last one and a half years where essentially we have seen certain countries hoard vaccines, um, bend um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, prevent African governments from even buying vaccines. It's not that we need charity handouts, but where governments wanted to buy vaccines, they just simply weren't available because very 
um, uh, very powerful contracts had been written um, that ensured that those vaccines that were available for purchase were essentially uh, bought by the Global North and the Global South would have to be reliant or dependent on essentially uh, the COFAX option that came out of uh, the, uh, the vaccines that were being manufactured in one country, namely in India. And what happened when India needed the vaccine for itself, Africa was left. So we have this really ridiculous, um, you know, really unjust scenario now where one part of the world has vaccinated even up to 80, 90% of its population is now thinking about going beyond adults to children and boosters um, and perhaps even uh, thinking about their domestic pets. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when the rest of the world has not even reached 15% vaccination. And I think we need to interrogate these issues. We need to bring intellectually uh, rigorous methods to challenge this essentially asyncrasy between the rich and the poor countries of the world and challenge this. Let me end um, with a couple of thoughts around what I've learned as an activist. You know, um, Duncan started uh, by talking a little bit about uh, the experience in Cancun. I think Cancun was uh, something like 2000 and, ooh, let me date ourselves, both of us. Um, I think it was something like 2003, um, if I've not got that right. If I got that right, yes. Um, you know, 10 years of activism in the international and the continental space, as I said, you know, gave me a fairly good sense of um, organizing for human rights across the continent in the world, uh, in the world summits, whether it be the UN, uh, WTO, the uh, WHO summits, but also at the continental level in the African Union and various other African regional institutions. But one of the things I learned that morning um, of 19th January 2015, as we walked onto that playground, is that justice, that you know, constitutionalism is essentially um, cemented by the activism of people in very local contexts, right? Um, and that if we are not actively claiming space, expanding civic space, as well as challenging the abuse of power, that we are not really going to be able to build the kind of uh, planet that is able to be a match for the fine words that exist, whether it be in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or whether it be in international human rights standards and um, conventions or whether it be at the continental level. Um, and that the, the work is primarily local with an eye to the global um, best practices and the global best standards of human rights. And there are four things that I think, you know, have become really clear for me in the last, um, you know, 10 years. And the first is this that we have to think beyond the binaries of us and them. As human rights uh, activists, we fall very easily into a number of fault lines. And these mindsets are essentially, in many ways, prisons um, that do not allow us to advance and, and expand, um, I guess, power in favor of, of just uh, causes. The first is that there are no good people and bad people. There are simply people that take that have uh, good or bad actions that have negative or positive consequences and therefore thinking about human rights work as first of all anti-state and secondly caught within the prism of international human rights standards rather than domestic political economic realities is essentially the first uh, block or um uh, you know, uh, uh, block in terms of our vision. I have had more success working with internal reformers sometimes than external public uh, human rights activists that are stuck between this us and them framework. The second, uh, and therefore, let me just uh, finish that thought. I think therefore thinking in terms of where are the cracks within the state that allow us to produce the kind of victory that we saw in the case of protecting schools from land grabbing um, become really important. Let me just give you um, the end of the story uh, to that uh, land grab back in 2015. In 2020, um, the president of the Republic of Kenya in his national address 
um, to the nation in his national address stated that no less than 14,000 schools had received title deeds and therefore were protected against land grabbing um, between this period of 2015 and 2022. That one really basic, a very micro action to protect um, that school spawned a movement of schools, communities, with the Lands Ministry, with the National Land Commission, with other authorities, and a civic alliance called the Shuleangu Alliance to actually lead to the titling of 14,000 schools. Now, if that is not a very vivid example of what is possible when you think across the us and them, and you begin to see this as an ecosystem with complexity and with reformists on one side and activists on the other side, and a common cause that can be generated between them, I can't think of another better example. The second um, lesson, the second thought, um, you know, that I thought was, was that kind of bubbled up as I was preparing for this session tonight, is really how fragile the human rights um, movement is, particularly in this, in this period. You know, we now have probably on the continent four generations of human rights organizations. We have the initial human rights organizations that were essentially non-governmental organizations funded by 100% um, funded by um, the international development assistance uh, industry. Um, many of them were focused primarily on civil and political liberties. This was a time when the state, it was the time of the one party state. Um, the, the freedom of expression was non-existent um, and the right to protest was essentially a jail uh, an op uh, what do you call it, a, a, a get, get into jail um, free card. Um, the second generation were the human rights organization that began to look at issues around economic, cultural and social rights. And I remember this from the 1990s, as I was just coming into the sector at that point. And we had a campaign uh, at the time when I was working for, for ActionAid, which we call the basic rights, basic needs are basic rights campaign. And we began to articulate the, the right to water, the right to health, the right to education. And it, what's interesting about that is we were doing it at a time when Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch were still debating whether these were justiciable and actually were important rights. We had, a, in the Kenyan context, we had actually begun to articulate this very uh, clearly. And it's, some of that work found its way into the 2010 co uh, Constitution. But that was the second wave. Um, and the third wave re began to develop around the idea of, um, you know, kind of identity-based rights, the rights of, uh, in the early days, the rights of indigenous people, the rights of women, the rights of youth, the rights of, of children and disability rights. And then more recently, you have seen the beginnings of a new movement um, around um, sexual identity and sexual choices. Um, and this is essentially is the LGBTIQ plus communities who are beginning to argue that they too have a right to marriage, they too have a right to dignity, they too have the right to jobs and to live in any communities as sexual minorities. And I think for me, this is one of the most interesting new movements that we have to support and, 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 uh, and encourage um, essentially across the continent. And we have seen some great um, you know, successes in places like Botswana, in places like South Africa. Um, and I think you know, this is, is the, the fourth generation. But I think I would continue to argue that despite all this mature, maturation um, and this growth in, in the, the diversity of human rights on the continent, one of the things that we have to recognize is that, you know, the NGO as a mode of organization, as a mode of organizing is really, um, I think, at a point of expiry. I think the levels of funding to human rights organizations generally have begun to drop. Um, proposals are essentially projects um, uh, rather than programmatic funding or institutional funding. And, and as I've said to many um, heads of mission, heads of diplomatic missions and development agencies, um, whenever I get the chance, I'm, not, I'm no longer interested in you funding projects, human rights projects, however interesting they are. I'm now asking you to fund independent organizations that can defend human rights and can defend democracy. And the only way that you can do that is to give us the resources for us to build assets and to build an, uh, a financial 
portfolio that is first of all diverse it is sufficient and thirdly it is based on very sound economic principles that everybody else is using um you know whether it be uh, essentially investment in financial markets investment in real estate the ability to generate surplus from merchandise and other um uh, you know for sale services that we can provide but i think the issue of financial resilience is probably the most um pressing issue for those of us who have spent the last 30 years working in this space um, from the NGO as a model of organizing. But underneath that, I think what's interesting is the emergence of social justice community-based organizations that are not waiting for donors to fund proposals. They are essentially tapping into the community resources um, to be able to deal with very localized human rights-related problems, whether it be domestic violence, whether it be uh, forced evictions, whether it be um, uh, extrajudicial killings or enforced disappearances of young men or criminal suspects um, uh, by police officers. And I think this is the second um, area of, of, of preoccupation. I think that anybody who's looking at the human rights world now needs to focus on. The third one is really how do we balance the work that needs to take place in the policy boardrooms, the places where decisions are made that affect millions and millions of people, and the spaces in the informal settlements, the urban, highly dense informal settlements, and the rural villages in which the majority of our peoples who are denied dignity, who are denied um, basic and essential services, who are denied the right to be able to participate in policy formulation. How do we bridge these two spaces? And I think for me, this is the other area that really, as, as somebody working within probably one of the uh, largest human rights organizations in Kenya today, um, as Amnesty International Kenya, we've been working in this country for, um, at least legally, we've been working in this country for about 10 years, uh, but have a 20 year history of protecting human rights and essentially protecting prisoners of conscience. Um, but we are, we are extremely well funded. We have a budget of about a million uh, pounds per annum. We have 18 staff. We have uh, 2,000 members across the country, um, 20,000 supporters across the country. Um, we have a we we operate from a position of privilege, and really the the conversation that I have been generating with my colleagues, with members, and with my board is really how do we place this at the service of communities? How do we ensure that communities are able to generate? Um, chapters and circles of conscience that are self-actualizing, um, that are self-driven, um, you know, and that are essentially visible and vocal and are able to keep power and privilege accountable at very local levels, whether it be at the level of a ward, um, which typically would be in, a, in an area that has about 40,000 to 100,000 people, or at the level of a county, which is the second uh, major unit um, uh, that Kenya works in, which I guess would be like the equivalent of a borough in the UK, perhaps, um, and of course, nationally. So I'm going to stop here because I do want us to have discussion and I do want us to have some, uh, you know, some provocation. And uh, uh, thank you all for listening to me. And really, once again, um, you have given my, uh, my family no end of pride that I could be speaking on Houghton Street today, uh, all the way from Nairobi. Over to you, Duncan. Thanks, Irungu. And embarrassingly, I never connected Houghton and Houghton. I can't believe I didn't do that. Um, that what a well, that was a fantastic insider take on the kind of challenges and evolution of human rights activism uh, in Africa and elsewhere. Um, over to Chaloka for a commentary. And Chaloka, over to you. Okay, uh, here I am. Thank you very much, Duncan. Thank you very much, uh, <clears throat> Irungu, for quite um, you know it's, it's an expose. It's a milestone. So. I really don't know where to start and where to end, uh, but except that you know I have shared some of the journey that Irungu has expressed uh, this evening. So paths have crossed, um, and perhaps that's where I should start. That you know, in the journey to advocacy uh, for human rights, um, constitution making, COVID, and other aspects, Irungu has left visible footprints. Uh, on his journey that are easy to see and to follow. Um, and I think that from my point of view, it's really the impact of advocacy that matters. 
uh, human rights started as a movement, as an international movement um, from the International Labour Organization uh, throughout um, to the involvement of um, the former First Lady of the United States in trying to have human rights in the UN Charter. Um, and I think that the greatest uh, risk to human rights is it has become a professional preoccupation uh, rather than as something that has to be fought for uh, at all times. And I think that this is the real merit of what uh, Irungu uh, has brought to us uh, in his uh, lecture this evening. He has spoken about the extent to which constitutionalism uh, clearly rests on powers of activism. Um, and we were involved in uh, the constitution of Kenya. We, we exchanged uh, views uh, and I'm of the view that the constitution of Kenya itself was a product of activism and advocacy. You know, without that, it would not have happened uh, because on the one hand, the amendments that you spoke of over 60 were a product of the thinking of minimum reforms that had always driven their approach to the constitution, but much more reforms that were geared at uh, serving the elite uh, against uh, the grain of the argument for comprehensive constitutional reform uh, based on the interests of the people and hence uh, the sovereignty of the people. So constitutions have become arenas for contestation in Africa because they're really about reconfiguring the African state and making it more relevant uh, to the people uh, and trying to reform it from the vertical colonial uh, imposed structure that it was and African leaders uh, embracing the state at that time and not knowing that the state was actually in need of reform and had to be rebuilt afresh in order to be relevant uh, to the people that they were going to, to lead. So the sovereignty of the people is a direct agency and why sovereign matters is that constitutionalism, the views of rights, the legitimacy of governments are based on the extent to which they are correlated um, to the people and what the people need. This then becomes the entry point uh, in relation to, to COVID. I think the one thing that COVID did, and not just in Africa, but elsewhere, is that it called for the relevance of the state more than ever uh, to the people um, completely to show its preparedness to take measures on grounds of public health um, in order to protect uh, not just the citizens, uh, but humanity, uh, I think, as a global uh, entity uh, and collection. But in doing this, we have seen the state, I think, respond in ways that are actually autocratic, uh, in ways that uh, brought the authority of the state to bear on the people uh, in ways that had not been contemplated before. Um, I, I recall the curfew scenes uh, in Kenya and South Africa at the beginning and India as well, of police physically beating up people rather than guiding people or discussing with people. And in one of those scenes that I saw, um, people who had broken the curfew were then shepherded to a room and all packed in one room, which made conditions for the spread of COVID <laughs> actually much more uh, potential than simply saying, please go home and dispace uh, and, and you get home safely. So the, the, the correlation between uh, the relevance of the state and the way in which the state uh, behaved in relation to uh, its people uh, brought out the more autocratic aspects of the state, not just in Africa, but I think globally, uh, almost everywhere. It's a question of degree uh, on the extent to which that would be. I'll come back to the public health approach in terms of human rights um, and the use of the constitution to protect public laws um, to, pub, to protect uh, public health uh, as, as, as well as the people. Uh, and I think this is what is contemplated by the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, but I'll leave that uh, towards the end. The basis for dissent, obviously, um, freedom of association, assembly, the basis for social, political, cultural organization of people uh, as a people, uh, quite distinct from the state, uh, is anchored in those rights. Uh, and indeed, I think the Kenyan constitution goes so far as to recognize the right to strike 
uh, in certain circumstances as, as a way of building the bedrock uh, for dissent and, and making uh, points that matter to the people uh, in relation to, to the state itself. You made very clear points about um, tensions, um, the legislative approach, states of emergency, um, curfews versus public health uh, approaches. Uh, and here I, I did a piece on principles applicable uh, to COVID um, in the context of human rights uh, at some point in time. It's quite clear that the declaration of states of emergency has not complied with the requirements of a state of emergency and the international human rights law. Um, in particular, issues of the exigencies of the situation that require a state of emergency, the proportionality of the measures taken in that regard, including safeguards on notification, um, and also the application of blanket bans in terms of travel internally or internationally, um, which a state of emergency in terms of proportionality uh, would not actually allow. But states took advantage uh, of invoking these measures uh, because of the fact that A, the population was looking up to the state, and B, there was quite fear and risk on the part of the population uh, because of COVID and information was scarce, not much flow of information from the state on how to deal with COVID uh, in the early days and, and towards the end. Uh, Self versus violence and what defines us as human beings, um, you know, clearly the question of safety, humanity, uh, here comes um, first and foremost. Uh, and bearing in mind, um, you know, the, the whole issue um, of humanity as a first point of call. But yes, gender-based violence increased. Um, I think even in the UK, if you saw the report that was released yesterday, they say it was about 60% increase in gender-based violence uh, during the, um, you know, the, 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 the COVID period. Uh, and to have to use COVID or the framework of COVID or the atmosphere of COVID um, as a kind of uh, framework for uh, infrastructure investment, uh, evict individuals in circumstances where eviction adds further risks uh, to them catching COVID. Uh, and Kenya, surprising, uh, because as you know, uh, you refer to the eviction of the Nubian community, uh, but there are two important decisions by the African Commission against Kenya, well, one by the African Commission and the other by the African Court uh, on the subject of evictions, the Endoris case, um, the Ogik case by the uh, African Court uh, on human and people's rights, both of which say that the eviction of these communities, which happened in the 1970s, was actually unlawful, uh, and they should be restored back to where they were uh, and given compensation uh, as a result of, uh, of that. Towards the end, I think there are issues about territorial approaches versus global approaches to a pandemic. Most of the measures taken by states as if the pandemic is territorial and only operates within their territorial boundaries, forgetting that a pandemic uh, actually has an international dimension and is a global phenomenon. So one part of the world is likely to get affected by another part of the world, depending on what is done or what is neglected. So concentrating on the issue of vaccines on a territorial basis, um, without looking at other states, other people outside of the state, has called more for leaders wanting to receive political legitimacy and instrumentalizing COVID for political reasons, rather than addressing COVID as an international pandemic that required uh, to be addressed um, in that particular uh, regard. You know, on the question of vaccines, only the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights from a human rights perspective called on states in the Americas to prioritize public health, comply with international uh, human rights obligations when making decisions, uh, especially as regards purchase, distribution and provide equitable access to vaccines. I think that's a message that the rest of the world um, you know, does need. To try and end up and, and not take too much time, I then get back to what I did say uh, about um, economic, social and cultural rights uh, and the issue um, 
of COVID uh, in these circumstances. Um, I think it's the, the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights recognizes the importance of steps to be taken by states to achieve the full realization of this right and include measures necessary for the prevention, treatment and control of, control of epidemics, uh, endemics, occupational and other diseases, which include um, pandemics. And in this regard, the covenant obviously establishes the test of necessity uh, in respect of the rights to health. And which is why at least however haphazard uh, the Kenyan approach was, but anchoring it in the rights to health uh, is the best approach to take from the point of view uh, of human rights. And this also corroborates the necessity uh, of the requirement um, with regards to how public health measures taken from the perspective of those rights uh, impinge on civil and political rights from the point of view uh, of indivisibility. So the argument here is not one dimensional as some states have uh, sought to, to put it. On the one hand, public health response must inform the nature of the restrictions uh, on human rights based on public health needs, such as COVID-19 situational assessment, testing, pressing, isolation, quarantine, while also clearly maintaining public health capacity to cope with the caseloads of COVID and creating conditions that would assure to medical service and medical attention to all those in need in the event of COVID-19 sickness. On the other hand, having informed uh, restrictions on human rights um, clearly should be the basis for determining the legality of restrictions on human rights and not the other way round. So in conclusion, with better knowledge and understanding of the spread and mutation of COVID, there must be a shift to more qualitative medically assessed conditions on its gravity, um, its variants, um, country of origin and country of destination situation. Um, the issues related to uh, public gatherings, isolation or quarantine. And of course, there should also be uh, on the agenda, the conditional easing of restrictions uh, or completely uh, as the pandemic um, allows uh, in certain instances. Um, you know, we see that this has not been the case uh, at all. Uh, in Uganda, children were out of school for two years, you know, completely. Uh, the case you had continued um, in all these two years. Um, the question of elections and electoral democracy was also affected by COVID. Some countries wanted to postpone elections on account of COVID. Others used COVID restrictions and measures to constrain the political space <laughs> to the opposition. Uh, I end there. I could say a lot more, but this is uh, clearly um, in, with total respect uh, to Irungu, uh, his work in human rights uh, over the years uh, that I have known him and he has remained principled uh, in that regard and, and completely committed uh, to that task. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chelok, for very helpful uh, insights there. Fantastic. Thank you, Chelok, for really uh, good insights and comments. Thank you, Irungu. I just want to say, you know, the, the, the research on people like you, Irungu, talks about um, people who can bridge between local communities and sort of the, the, the corridors of power at a global level. You are definitely one of those bridging individuals equally at home in the, in the playground, literally, uh, or, or, or at the World Bank or wherever it, or WTO, wherever it is. And it's fascinating to watch how you've moved between them. Fantastic insider insights. I hope the students on the call appreciated what an insider and honest reflection this was. This is a genuine cutting edge issue lecture, and that's what we like, and also just a site of the kind of leadership, speaking from an Oxfam point of view, the kind of leadership we need now um, going on, going forward. Um, so I think we've, it's been a real privilege to have both of you on the call. Thank you so much. And just to say, we've got coming up in the next uh, three weeks, um, three very powerful and impressive women. Lise, Lise Grande, talking as a UN veteran, talking about peace building. Isabella Weber, a brilliant economist talking about China. And Rafif Ziada, fantastic scholar and poet, 
talking about deindustrialization in Palestine. So do come back next week and the weeks after, but we've had a really good evening. Please go out and get people listening to the podcast and the YouTube video, because I think this has been a really excellent session. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.